What we want to do now is hopefully jump in where we have left off the last several weeks in the book of Acts, a Bible book, Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, for us, the gospel in action. And we're going to be in the 28th chapter. And so if you would, I want you to find your way there. You'll find a, a table of contents in your Bible. But if you don't have maybe a, if you don't have a, a device or a smartphone that will get you access to a Bible, we want you to hold us accountable in that. And so if you'd like a Bible, would you just raise your hand and hold it up there? And uh, we will put one in your hands. And so if you don't have a Bible, we want to put one in your hands. We, we think this thing that we do in the Bible is actually something that God uses to steer us and to direct us. It's to protect you from me just standing up here and spouting my opinions uh, instead, it's something that gives us a sense of direction toward God's will for you and for me. And we like to pick up where we left off, so we will find ourselves this morning in Acts 28. But I want to do something interesting. We're wrapping up the book of Acts today. For the last several months we've been in, don't, that's not, I saw that, that was not fair. Um, you shouldn't be excited about that. So we're going to wrap up Acts 28 and wrap up, wrap up the book of Acts. But since we're going to wrap up the book of Acts, the only reasonable thing to do is for you to turn with me and we'll spend our time in Isaiah chapter 11. So whenever you found that Acts 28, put something in there, put your finger in there, maybe mark a spot, uh, maybe find a way to mark your spot there and make your way to Isaiah in the Old Testament to chapter 11. So if you have to run back to the table of contents, that's fine. Um, I want to give you maybe a sense of direction and why we're in, in Isaiah chapter 11 and maybe catch you up to speed and we will find the last half of our time hopefully in the right place, in the right context in Acts chapter 28. So the book of Acts has been telling us about a movement that began with what Jesus completed in his own life and work and what he did with his perfect life and his sinless obedience to God and and his rejected and betrayed death on an old rugged cross and then walking out three days later as we celebrate every Easter victorious over all the things that you and I have to ultimately give an account for and he was victorious over all those things on our behalf. And the book of Acts tells us the transition of what began in Jesus' work and what he taught and what he accomplished and was passed over to Jesus' followers, his disciples, the apostles, and then the churches through the presence of his Spirit. So the book of Acts, as we've seen for the last several months, is a transitional period between what Jesus accomplished, the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, as told to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as it's handed off, as Jesus ascends and hands off that mission that God began from the foundations of the earth for the salvation of all the nations to the church, to the followers of Jesus Christ. So the book of Acts is kind of this place in which we're still seeing some of the things that Jesus was able to do by his own power taking place through the apostles, but we're also seeing that period come to an end. But what we're also seeing is a new period in which a new miraculous undertaking, a movement that begins at Jesus' work and his own personhood and his own divinity is passed on in his presence to the church, that is to you and to me, such that we find ourselves as we wrap up today in a movement that Jesus began. 2,000 years ago, here we are, I don't know how many thousand miles away, a continent and an ocean away, a part of the same movement that Jesus began and passed on to his first followers. Still singing and saying to ourselves that God's redeeming love in Jesus will be our theme. It will continue to be what we talk about, what we pray about, and what we share with the world. But I want you to see, hopefully, that this thing, this movement that's begun, uh, this thing that's being accomplished for these last 28 chapters and is carrying on even now is actually something that isn't new. It's not a plan B. It's not that God had a hope for people and they messed it up and God is now reeling having to figure out a plan B or solution to make up for all that's happened. We saw this in the last couple of weeks. There is no uh, there's no pagan dualism at work in the world. That is, God isn't like fighting the works of evil as we speak. It's not like we're trying to do good and, and God's trying to do good to make up for the evil that's in the world. That is not the case. There was not an equal and opposite force of good and evil at work in the world. Instead, now that Jesus Christ has been among us and with us and accomplished this victory on our behalf, there is an overwhelming amount of goodness and grace that Jesus has now poured out on you and me. So much so that it will take all of eternity for us to absorb and experience all of it. 
So there's not just like, we're not in the balance, as some might say, between good and evil and, oh, I hope you choose the right path or I hope that God can fix this and I hope things work out for our benefit. God, knowing that we did not have the ability to save ourselves sent Jesus and not hoping that maybe we would balance the scales, he poured out his love onto us to tip the scales in our favor forever and ever. And this is something that God has been doing from the beginning. So I want to show you a prophecy to a people. A people that were living between seven and 800 years before Jesus came to live on the earth. And I want to show you this in Isaiah chapter 11. And hopefully when we come back to Acts, we'll see why. And this movement that has been taking place in the book of Acts, this history book of the first church, in which Jesus passes off his power to his people, to you and to me, is not plan B, and it's not something you and I should hope might happen or maybe work really hard to see come, to ba- come about, but it is something that God has been doing from the beginning. And so here you are, verse 1 of chapter 11, the book of Isaiah. A prophecy to a people who are in a tough and difficult spot. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot, verse 1 tells us, from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and Shinar, and Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations, and will assemble the banished of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. In Isaiah chapter 11, we see the precursor as many of the prophets speak of the future and of what God means to do, we see this precursor amongst this major prophet to the gospel. He speaks good news of who God is and what God has done and what God will do for these people so that they would put their trust in God and they would lose fear and find hope in Him. And what I think we find here is kind of the precursor, the prequel, the preview, if you will, to the gospel that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and now even Luke tells us in the book of Acts will come to pass for you and for me. So I want to spend our time here. I think what I can do in in the first little bit here is maybe talk about some of the expectations and the assumptions of what life might look like if God were to do something great. We pray a prayer based on the book of Deuteronomy. We say this morning, open up the heavens. This is a prayer that comes right out of the mouth of Moses. And where God was saving his people, he 
says to Moses, look, you've been faithful to lead these people. Whatever you ask, I'll give you. Whatever you want, whatever measure of anything that you want, just, just tell me and I'll make it happen. And Moses responds and he says, God, just show me your glory. And he had the ability to see everything or have anything that he wanted, and all he wanted was to see God's glory one more time. Because as God has created his people to know him, he has created a hunger inside us to be with him. And even though something inside of us is broken and busted and desires everything that is rebellious and everything that is contrary to God's will, there's still apparently God has put something in us to desire and hunger for him and to hunger for the restoration of all things and for that, for that which is broken in and around us to be taken from us and for us to be reconciled with our creator. And this is a picture. This is a thing that the Bible continues to tell over and over and over again. And as the people rebel against God from the garden all the way to the end, remember the very first story of the Bible is about how when it's in the people's hands, the first thing they like to do is to mess it up and destroy it. And that should have been, if I were God, the last chapter of the Bible. That would have been in the point where this is where God, that is Jonathan, comes in, smites the people, destroys them, the end. Wipe off my hands, start over somewhere else. But instead, this story goes over and over and over again of God giving them another chance and showing mercy and grace and being slow to anger and slow to wrath. And they respond with rebelliousness. They, re, they respond with, with anger and they respond by running away from God. And instead of making, I don't know, chapter 10, 12, 14, the point where God goes, all right, that's it, that's enough. I'm going to wipe you off the face of the planet. He continues to show his mercy to them over and over and over and over and over again. So all the way to the point where at this particular place in history, in Isaiah, the people rebel again. And instead of giving up on them, what does God do? God sends a messenger, Isaiah, to tell of a time in which God's mercy will overflow to the extent that all of the earth will not be able to contain it. This blessing will come. And it will come, apparently, through that which is broken. So Isaiah 11, verse 1, says that there's a shoot that's going to come from a stump. So what is he talking about there? Well, if you go back to chapter 2 of Isaiah, or even the chapter before, you'll see some language about how the cedars of Lebanon, that is the people of Israel, the people that were God's chosen people, the people through whom God wanted to show his mercy. And even though he had the opportunity at every given moment to display his wrath to his people, to all of creation, he chose to be a God who displays his mercy to the world. And in showing mercy, he takes those rebellious people, this orchard, this, this grove, let's say, of trees, and he chops them down to punish them for their rebelliousness. Their rebellion against him draws upon God's wrath. So let's start there. There's a stump. There's evidently what used to be, apparently we have a picture here of a healthy tree, and it is sawn off. Not ripped out, but just sawn off. Let's just hang there for just a minute. There's this picture of God and his people, and his people running from him, and deserving God's punishment and wrath. No one, not even me, enjoys talking about this. But I want to give you, hopefully, kind of an, a, a baseline understanding of where these words might have been heard and, and how they might have come across to the original people who would have heard them. There's a constant question, I think, amongst people. If, like, first and foremost, is there a God? But the second one is, if there is a God, is he good? Is it even good that there is a God? If I were to believe that there's a God, is that good for me? And there's a, there's a little bit of here that, that, that ought to inspire, as the Bible would call, fear. And that is God's wrath. And people don't like this because they don't realize how sinful and rebellious they are, or they don't realize how holy and perfect and righteous God is. And the proportionality to which you understand your own sinfulness and God's holiness is the gratitude that you will experience for his mercy. So if you're not that bad, if you're right, if the person in the mirror, as you tell him or her every morning, is not that bad, and you look good, ugh, well then, God's mercy isn't that great either, because he's lucky to have you on his team. And you better be glad, he, I'm sorry, you're gonna, that's going to be burned in your mind forever, right? <laughs> Unimpressive. I don't know what you do in the mirror in the morning. I mean, I certainly don't do this. I don't know who would do that. But if, for example, I looked in the mirror and really liked what I saw and really thought that that guy's good enough, smart enough, and, and, and gosh darn it, people like you, right? If I really believe that, then the mercy that God shows to me really isn't that great. And the amazing grace that we sing about, 
Isn't that amazing? So also, we, when we look at God and we think, ah, he's not that great, or, or things maybe are pretty rough, and so God might not be that good, then so also we will find a difficult time blessing the Lord, thanking the Lord, expressing gratitude for forgiving us. And the proportionality to which you see yourself versus God will be how you view how good this news is that God is here to save us. Now we believe this even in a pagan, secular culture. We all believe this. Here's what it looks like. The sin that you commit is not weighed by its own gravity. It's not weighed by its own merit. It's weighed according to the proportion to which you have sinned against something else. So the gravity of a sin, the greatness of sin, isn't necessarily based on how it weighs or measures against other sin, but it's how it weighs or measures against who you've sinned against. Now we believe this. This is in our culture, whether you realize it or not. So right now, if I stand up here and I tell you a lie, if I were to tell you a lie, a story that's not true about myself, like, where were you the night of May 31st? Uh, or I don't know if there's 31 days in May, honestly. Let's go with July 1st. Where were you the night of July? July the 1st. Where were you? And let's say I lied about where I was. I could tell you a story about wherever I might have been. What happens to me? Maybe I betray your trust. Maybe you, you won't trust me anymore. But you'd probably forgive me. Because we're equals, right? It's just you and me. And if I apologize, hey, I'm sorry for lying. I didn't mean to you probably would find it in your heart to forgive me. You probably would. No harm, no foul. But now imagine that you're not you. Imagine that you're a federal grand jury. And I lie about where I was the night of July 1st. Now all of a sudden it's not just a little white lie, is it? It's perjury. And it is a federal offense. Punishable by prison time in a federal penitentiary. Now, what's the difference? It's the same lie. It's not that bad. But all of a sudden, we begin to realize that the sin itself is not good or bad, but instead, the sin is weighed against who might be sinned against. The greatness of a sin is proportional to whom has been sinned against. And we even see this in our own culture. To the point where, if I turn against you, I mean, oops, you won't sit with me at the lunch table anymore, right? But if you're the king and I rebel against you, what's it called then? We have special words, don't we? Treason. You get it? Because as long as we're just sinning against someone equal, and then it's, oh, it's forgivable, it's not a big deal. We'll get over it unless they keep doing it. But if we sin against someone who is much greater, has much greater authority, much greater influence, and much greater power, be it a king, a president, a federal judge, you name it, there are consequences. And even though the sin is identical, the consequences are not because the proportionality of the sin depends not on what you do, but on who you sin against. Now take that concept that's kind of at the root of our sense of justice, even in our own society, and multiply it times the infinite measure of God's righteousness. Take the gravity of your sin against a federal judge and multiply it times the infinite, the infinite holiness and perfection of a loving and merciful God. And if sinning against you is not a big deal, but sinning against, I don't know, a jury is, is perjury and a federal offense, then how much infinitely more, how, how much infinitely greater is our sin against a holy and perfect God? Not a jury of our own peers but someone who is set apart, holy, matchless, unlike any other, any other in all of the world, in all of existence. He is holy. He is set apart. So he's not like you. But not only is he holy, Isaiah tells us that he is holy, holy, holy. He's holy cubed, right? He is holy to the third power. He is set apart from that which is set apart from that which is set apart. You can't touch him. He is out of your league. And to sin and to rebel against him and to not give him the matchless glory and affection that he deserves because of his merit and his goodness is infinitely, infinitely punishable. You deserve his wrath. Now, I don't like weighing a lot of that. 
I don't like weighing my own sin against his mercy and against his righteousness. I like, I don't know about you, weighing my sin against yours. I, I like it. That's my, I have fun there. I'm pretty safe there. Because unless, I mean, you know, where, where can you not find some way in which you are better than the people around you, right? But it seems that God is good. God is infinitely good because your darkened and rebellious heart is infinitely bad. I don't like it, but I want you to see that that's what's going on when he says there's a stump. These people deserve death. They deserve punishment. They deserve banishment. And they deserve for God to wipe them off the face of the planet, give up on them, and move along. And yet instead, this stump isn't ripped up by the root. Instead, it's chopped off, and it's apparently still got life in it. And out of these people, these people that have rebelled against God and deserve His punishment, deserve His wrath, out of their punishment will come a little ray of hope and a shoot, a small branch, will come out of this chopped down stump. It says it's going to come from the stump of Jesse. A little Bible drill here, I don't know. Jesse is the father of King David. Kind of important, kind of a big deal in the course of history, in the course of the Bible as it tells us what's going on. He's kind of after God's own heart, and even that's weird to see, but he's also this beloved king, even though he does awful things. There's a picture of God's mercy already in there, as you can see it here, I hope. Uh, This is an adulterer and a murderer, and yet he's after God's own heart. Well, maybe he measures things. Maybe God seems to measure things a little bit differently than we do because we don't typically say, oh, that's a godly man. He killed a guy uh, uh, to cover up his adultery. We don't usually say that's a good thing, but evidently that's exactly where God likes to work, and that's exactly the kind of fertile soil in which God wants to see a root bring forth a shoot. And there will be a branch, and it will share, it, it, it will bear fruit, verse 1 tells us. If you want to skip to Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 1 in the first few chapters of those few Gospels, you will see the lineage of Jesus Christ traced all the way back to a, a really cool guy by the name of David. So that we would know that God has not abandoned his people, that he has not simply chopped them off to be stumps and dead and lifeless for the rest of eternity, but instead, out of this brokenness, out of this rebellion, God's mercy will be evident. And that branch that comes out, we believe, is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. And out of the people that deserve absolute wrath and absolute punishment will come God's mercy. It says that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And then he will have wisdom. He will be given understanding. He will be counsel and might. I challenge you, any chance you get as you read through the Gospels, look for all the ways in which this becomes true in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite stories, if you want to, you can turn there. It's in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus stands up in the synagogue of this religious group of people, the stump that's been chopped off because God is wrathful. But evidently there is still a a shred of mercy that will be enough for all of eternity that God shows them in Jesus Christ. And so when he shows up in their midst, he stands up to read the Scripture, similar probably to what we would do. And Jesus stands up and he reads the Scripture. Do you know what he chooses to read? He chooses to read Isaiah 61. And he quotes Isaiah 61 and he says... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That is, I have been anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to preach the good news to the poor, to the meek, and to preach freedom for the captives. And then, Jesus does the epic mic drop. He says, I am this person. You in this room have seen the fulfillment of this prophecy. I am he. Drops the mic and walks away. Now that's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to appreciate because we don't have any real religious or social prophecies that kind of are are hanging over our heads. We don't have any real expectations. There aren't any like mythical figures that, uh, that we expect to see or that we kind of wonder about. The only ones we have are almost kind of ridiculous but at the same time, it might, might start to point to how disconnected we are, like, like things you kind of wonder about, but, but don't know if they're really true. It'd be like if I showed up today and I was like, I'm a vampire, you know, and be like, oh, we kind of wondered if those things were real or not. I mean, we had all sorts of movies and books about it. Nobody really believes it, but maybe, I don't know. There's all sorts of special rules about how you kill them. They must be sort of real, right? There's other kind of mythical things. They're just silly. It'd be like if I walked in here with, a, I don't know, a Sasquatch, a Yeti, right? Look, I found him. Here he is. 
or if I had like definitive proof for the Loch Ness Monster. Those are kinds of things we kind of, we kind of in our own hearts, that's why we keep them alive, we kind of hope they're true. It'd be really cool, uh, unless of course it turned out that those things are violent and evil, but, but we kind of hope they're true and kind of, we don't just dismiss them, do we? For some reason, those kinds of myths don't go away. They just won't. And it's because we kind of have like this myth, this, this possible future that's hanging over our heads. Uh, in the religious circles, I bet the only one we kind of have right now that people sort of expect, uh, it's the Antichrist. So we like to throw it around every chance we get. I don't know if you kind of heard this, especially in politics, right? Like, he's the Antichrist. <laughs> you know, it's, but but it, it, you begin to kind of get a picture of like this, this hanging prediction that we don't really want to go away, but we want to pull it out, hopefully, if it's possibly good for us. Somehow it benefits us. So it's hard for us to kind of see how Jesus would have walked into a room and said this great prophecy that which you have been expecting and praying to God to bring about has happened today. It's hard for us to grasp that. And even just thinking about the Loch Ness Monster or, or the Yeti or you pick a jackalope, I don't know, things that you kind of, eh, maybe it'd be kind of cool if they were true. It's hard for us to get access to this. But Jesus does the ultimate mic drop and he says, in your hearing, you are seeing this prophecy fulfilled. And even this particular passage starts using the kingly language to describe who Jesus is. The spirit of the Lord rests upon him, wisdom and understanding. These are things that in the Old Testament only kings were given. Only kings asked God to be anointed with wisdom. And Jesus walks into a group of people and he's like, oh, by the way, all those things about that king, that Messiah that's coming, I'm him. You wonder why they wanted to kill him. And he's different from anyone else. His delight, verse 3 tells us, is in the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to obey the law. I don't want to obey that which is right. What I want to do is get to as close as I possibly can to what is wrong without getting caught. Anyone? Right? It's a speed limit, but yeah, I mean, come on. Really? It's a stop sign, but like, I mean, like, you may really stop? You mean like stop, stop? Have I, you know, have I, have I fulfilled the minimum requirements of this law? That's me. I just want to do just a little bit, just enough. But it says here that there's a king that's coming, and he doesn't want to just barely get by. His fear, and his, excuse me, his delight isn't actually in the fear of the Lord, the law of the Lord. And he will judge not by what his eyes see, and he will not decide disputes by what his ears hear. This symbol is all across our own government. Right? There's some virtuous ladies that we seem to exalt. Lady Liberty, right? She's outside of a harbor in New York City. Right? But, but there's also another lady, Lady Justice. And every time you see her, she's blindfolded, is she not? And she's holding scales and a sword. And it's as if to paint this picture that no matter what happens, she's going to make decisions based on where those scales fall. She's not partial toward either side. She just simply enforces what she sees. And if something seems to get out of whack, she's got a sword. So that just in case, if the scales are turned unfairly, she can enforce justice. And she's blind. Justice, in a sense, is blind. She's not partial. And so also, that picture kind of comes to life here. Jesus will come and he will judge, not by what we see or by the way that we might judge, but by the way he sees with righteousness, it says in verse 4. He will not judge on his own impartiality. He will judge on his own righteousness and perfection. It says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And in the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. I challenge you, read Revelation chapter 1. And then chapter 19 and 21. And you'll see this beautiful picture of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, coming back. And in Revelation, we see this picture of the Lamb of God coming back and a sword is coming out of his mouth. To demonstrate for us that it is by Jesus' word that there will be judgment. Hebrews tells us that this word that Jesus speaks is able to not just surgically remove things that are harmful, but it's able to amputate, cut all the way through the bone to the marrow. It's sharp. It is a sword that has power. And his word matters. And his, by his word, we will find judgment before God. And by his word, we will find his wrath or mercy. Righteousness, it says in verse 5, will be this belt that he wears. Right? I don't know what you wear I don't know what you put on. You put on pants. Jesus puts on righteousness, right? Right, I don't know what you, you, you get a belt buckle. Jesus wears righteousness. And that's how Jesus clothes himself. That's the thing that he would never go to work without. Get it? He's perfection. He can't go without. That's who, he's, that's, that's who he's clothed with. That's his identity. And then there's this radical picture of what's going to happen 
Whenever this king comes, this Messiah comes, it says that the wolf and the lamb are going to be friends, the leopard and the goat are going to be friends, the calf and the lion, even the fattened calf, like the tempting calf, are all of a sudden going to be friends with the lion. They're going to start hanging out together. And Isaiah tells us that there's a king coming, and he's bringing a kingdom that's so radically disproportionate to anything that you know that it will look like craziness. My favorite one there. One day, did you get this? The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra. That's a venomous snake. And the weaned child will put his hand on the adder's den. So one day, the breastfeeding child will play with poisonous snakes. One day, the weaned child will also play with poisonous snakes. This is crazy, right? Now you start to see just how crazy this thing is, is going to be. One day, when God comes back, I mean, this is going to be a, this is a rough estimate here, but like people will post pictures of their baby on Facebook with poisonous snakes. Get it? Look, here we are with our, our pet lion and our pet tiger and our poisonous rattlesnake. And here he is with little baby Johnny. Right? I mean, think about it in your own instinct. What would you do if your, your, your own beloved child started crawling toward a poisonous snake? And apparently something's going on here when this Jesus comes that will mess up everything in the way that it's ordered. And the first time that the gospel is declared in the book of Genesis, God says that one day out of you, your seed, out of the seed of this woman, that's important because I don't know if you know this, you can talk to your parents about this, but seeds don't come from women. That's what makes kind of this whole virgin birth a little bit important, right? And so, so again, if you don't understand that, talk to me later, talk to your parents, but like a seed of the woman will come and he will crush the head of the snake. And the fulfillment of this promise will be so complete, so sufficient, that no one will be afraid of snakes anymore. And once this ancient snake, once this ancient demon is put to death by this good and merciful king, you and I will become friends with snakes, and snakes will become the top feature, not kittens of the internet, right? Snakes! And people will love lions. They will love things that normally would kill us. That's what God is doing. And Jesus walks in to the synagogue and says, this is happening. It's happening right now. So I want to show you how the Bible tends to make this a picture. Um, hopefully kind of demonstrate for you uh, the way this looks for us. And maybe, maybe kind of show you the, the way that the Bible explains some of these things and the language it uses to explain it. And you'll see here that most of the time the Bible talks about these kinds of things as the present age, sometimes the present evil age. Wow, that's small. Um, the present evil age and the age to come. And so I just want to, I may have to read this off to you just so you'll see it. Um, but in the present age, the Bible, and you can look, every, there's, a, there's a scripture reference for all of these things that the Bible describes about the present age. It is marked by death. It's marked by sickness. It's marked by demonic oppression. It's marked by our failure to keep God's law. It's marked by sin. It's marked by condemnation. And it's marked by idolatry. That is worshiping that which God, uh, wor giving the worship that God alone deserves to something else. So death, sickness, demonic oppression, failure to keep the law, sin, condemnation, idolatry. And the Bible talks about an age that is to come. And the New Testament refers to it, Jesus specifically, as a kingdom of God. And there is a new king coming, and you better get ready, because when he gets here, all the people he brings on his coattails matter. And in that new, ki in that new kingdom, in the kingdom of God, there is now where there once was death, there is resurrection. And where there once was sickness, there is now healing. And where there once were demons and evil ruling the earth and running all over, doing whatever they want, the demons, by the power of Jesus' own authority, are cast out. And in where there once was a failure to keep the law, the Spirit is given to empower people to fulfill the law, to obey the law. Where there once was sin, now there is forgiveness. There is salvation where there once was condemnation. And then you see toward the end, did you catch the picture? He uses the word nations. Verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. That's the Mount Zion, the mountain of God's people. Why? Because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. And the root of Jesse, he will stand as a signal for the peoples. What peoples? It says, of him shall the nations, quite literally the word Gentiles, the people that are not religious, the people not born into God's family, even they will see that God's mercy 
is quite visible. And they will find his resting place glorious. And he will extend his hand a second time to the remnant, the remains of the people. So that in verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations. And he will assemble all those that are banished back together. And where there once was condemnation and idolatry, there will be the nations worshiping the God of Israel. And the good news of his kingdom will be going to every single person. Now here's the catch. This is where this is important. We tend to think uh, that this particular picture is of how this is how it's going to be fulfilled. This is going to be the stopping point. There's going to be a place. Uh, you, I'm, I'm a Venn diagram monster, am I not? So this is how I think. I, I walk around thinking in Venn diagrams. This is what I do. Just woo. Anyway, so what we tend to find in the Bible is that the kingdom of God is not a moment, but instead it's a person. And the person begins, and this place where you and I have been called to exist is the place where that which of the present age is coming to an end, and that which of the age to come is coming to pass. Such that Colossians tells us that Jesus is what? He's the firstborn of the resurrection. One day, death will not affect anyone, but it's going to start with Jesus. And when we're identified with him, the Bible tells us that as we're baptized into his death, so also we will be resurrected into his life. And where there once was sickness, what did Jesus do? There's healing. Where there once was demons, the first story that Mark tells us, he goes and he casts out demons. The Spirit's with us. And where there once was wrath, there's now forgiveness. So much so that there is salvation where there once was death and there where used to be idolatry, Jesus is beginning an age in which the people who don't even deserve, in fact, the people who are dead in their trespasses, Jesus is calling to life. And we live in this age where you can kind of see the end of the present age, but you can also see little pieces of the, king, the kingdom that is to come. The way that I've heard this described, and I love this picture, it's the difference between D-Day and World War II and V-Day. Right? D-Day was the victory that the Allied forces had at Normandy. They rushed the beach, lost lots of people, many, many casualties. But that victory signaled the end of the war. But if you were going to join the army, you don't want to join after D-Day. There's still fighting to be done. There's still a great death toll. There's still loss. There's still things that that are coming to pass. But there's an annunciation of victory. If you want to join the army, you want to join on V-Day. The last victory in which the Allied forces took over every single one of their objectives. And the difference here you see between D-Day and V-Day, Jesus has announced the beginning of the end. That which holds you and I captive in this earth is coming to an end. This is beautiful. You see this in the church. You look around, you ask some of the people, and this is the coolest thing. I I don't want to share all of them or or, or out your dirty laundry, but the stories that I've heard even in this room of how God is bringing new life where there once was brokenness is incredibly exciting. And it's happening all around you. And where there once was brokenness and where there once was a failure to keep the law, God somehow miraculously is empowering us to be his children. And where there once was 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 wretchedness and, and rebellion and we worshiped other things. Now God is replacing with this deep affection for himself. And he's satisfying our longing, not with the things and the trinkets of this world, but with his own presence. So let's turn to the very end of this book in which you and I have been reading. And let's read the last few verses. And I want, if you will, to see if you can connect the dots. And maybe you can see all the cool things that God is doing. Because I think what you'll find, I think what you'll find is that the person in the work of Jesus is now the good news that God's kingdom has come. It's good news that the church now announces and demonstrates to the rest of the world. Let's begin in verse 17 of Acts chapter 28. I've been holding that spot for a while. Here we go. Verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. This is Paul, who has now been, made his way all the way to Rome. And when they had gathered, he said to them, this is the Jews, the chosen people. This is the, this is the stump of Jesse, if you will. Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. 
But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for, with, for, with regard to this sect that is the, the way, another set of language that, or words, the vernacular that comes right out of the book of Isaiah. This sect we know that everywhere is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, they expounded to them, testifying you ready? To the kingdom of God. And trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some, like maybe some of you in this room, were convinced by what he said. But others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, this is chapter 61 of Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and then I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God, just like verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 11, has now been sent to the Gentiles, to the nations. And they will listen. So he, that is Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming, just in case you missed it the first time, Luke wants you to know, the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You see, Jesus has done something and accomplished something for us. Not plan B, but in fact, the thing that God set out to do from the beginning, to reveal himself to the nations as a merciful and loving God. And God could, had, it, had he chosen, displayed his wrath over your life and mine, but being rich in mercy and slow to anger, chose you from the foundation of the world as an instrument to display his mercy. And even though you and me deserve, we deserve punishment for our rebellion. We deserve it. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus has shown us that he wants to display his affection and love and mercy through our lives. Realize the age in which you and I now live. God is doing something to save the nations, to save people who, while they were dead and unable to see him, were called to glorious life. While they once were enemies of God running from him, in that moment, that is when Jesus Christ died in their place. On your worst day, the worst possible day, in which you racked up more sins by the hour than at any greater rate than in your whole entire life, that was the day in which God looked at you and chose to save you. And having every right in His infinite holiness to display His wrath on you and to display how you deserve punishment, He chose, my friend, He chose to save you and to redeem you and to make something beautiful out, out of something that was once chopped down. This is the age in which you now live. So here's what this means. So some of you are like, this is nonsense. I don't believe in this Jesus. It's crazy. My friend drugged me here, and I'm going to punch him after this, right? Okay? That's where you are, some of you. That's cool. I'm so glad you're here. Because here's what I think I found out. That this 800 years before Jesus came, there was a prophecy, and it was about you. It was about you. You and your non-religious self and your, and your awful broken family tree. It's about me, too. And you would come into this place and the nations of which you represent would hear how good Jesus is. That God is not out to get you or to destroy you like a child destroying an anthill. But God is out to save you and to redeem you so that you might be a testimony to the nations of how good God is. Because God, as we see here, will use you for His glory. You do not have an option about this. God will in His infinite mercy and infinite goodness and infinite wrath use you to display his glory he will either use you to display his wrath for the rest of eternity because you deserve it because he is disproportionately infinitely greater than you or he will use you 
to display his infinite patience and mercy that is new every day and infinite in measure. If you're wondering, why am I here? Why am I here? It's so that you would look and see how good this God is and how merciful he is in Jesus Christ. I shared this with you several weeks ago. We, we talked about this as well. You're wondering, like, why am I here? Why am I in this place? If you're not a Christian and you're wondering why you're here, you're here to become a Christian. I want to beat you to that. You're like, why am I here? This is what God has called you here to confess his goodness. And if you would believe, then you would see how good he is. But then for the rest of us, we've seen and we've tasted how good God is. Here's what, here's what I think this is for us. This is the, the beautiful picture of the book of Acts and this mercy that God has shown for us. He's going to use you. He's going to use you for this. From the foundation of the world, he chose you to demonstrate his mercy to the world so that people would look at you and be amazed at how good God is. This is beautiful. You don't deserve to be a part of it, neither do I. And so here's where I want to land this plane. Um, for some of you, um, you've been to my house, you know you've been in my home, and obviously I, I, at some point, I want all of you in my house, you're all welcome, you're part of my family, but uh, um, if you do, you're going to have to show me great patience, because we're always in the middle of a project. Uh, we've bought a house that's kind of a fixer-upper, so until I die, uh, there will always be projects that need to be done, right? Just kind of been neglected for the last 20-so years, and so we're in the middle of projects, and so that's a good excuse to say that we maybe haven't cleaned up a room here or there, uh, but there's like a mess typically every time you come over, and in those messes, I've, I've learned something about my own family. My, my two daughters, age four and age six, really want to help in these projects, really want to help their daddy. They just, so, oh man, they just want to help, and and here's the problem. I can say to you because they're down the hall and they don't podcast me on iTunes just yet. Uh, they really get in the way. Like we're trying to fix something and they just make it harder. They just mess it up. I'm like, do this. And I, I, whatever the project was, if they come along and help, it just got longer. It just got worse. And, and I got I to gotta, I gotta confess to you as a, as a sinful, rebellious father, I just want them to just get out of the way so I can do it. Just move. I'm gonna, I can do this better than you. If you would just get, go away, I'll do this. But here's something I learned. Because I love my two daughters, because I love them, and I want them to be problem solvers and leaders, and, and I want them to think on their feet, and I want them to learn with their hands. And because I love them, I go out of my way to find ways in which they can be a part of what their father's doing. So here's what I'll tell you. If you come along into my house and there's a project that's not finished or if there's like a spot that's missing, I could have messed it up. I'm not perfect. But it's also possible if there's like a weird texture in the paint. That's where a four-year-old and a six-year-old jumped in with their dad and was painting the wall. And even though it made more work for me, because I love them and I know what's best for them, I invite them to join in. Make sure you get this. My daughters, and they'll tell you the opposite, are not good painters. Like they probably, because of what I've done, they will probably come to you with a great deal of confidence and be like, I can help you paint your house. I help paint my house. And here's what, no, they're not. No, they're not. They're only as good as their father is. And there's this beautiful thing. Because I love them, I'm willing to draw them into this thing that their father is doing. Now multiply that silly, self-centered project that goes on in my house times the infinite measure of God's mercy for the nations, and now you begin to see how big a deal that he has asked you and me to declare his goodness to the people that we now know. Not because you're special. He doesn't need your help to glorify himself to the world. But because, Christian, he loves you, he has called you in to participate in the thing that he has been doing from the beginning. And he, in his infinite mercy, is willing to take your mess and mine and make something beautiful out of it so that at the very end of the day, this movement that began in Jesus Christ will carry on until its completion where one day we'll gather around the throne and sing about how he saved us. And we'll marvel in the same way that you might marvel how a four-year-old can paint a house, we will marvel how God could have used you and me to share this good news with the world. Let's pray.
Father, you are perfect. And the best places we see your perfection are when we see our own imperfection. Father, you are good. Uh, you are you are great because you are infinite in mercy and patience. You are not slow as the world defines slow, but instead you are patient with us. So if there's some of us in this morning that that's just difficult to believe, there's doubts in our own minds about the truth of that, would you begin to demonstrate for us, open our eyes to this good thing that you've been doing from the beginning. That out of the chopped off trees of rebellion and sinfulness, you have chosen to exalt yourself as a merciful and loving king. And in the midst of broken and corrupt kingdoms of this earth, you have chosen to establish your kingdom. Thank you for drawing us into this. Thank you for your mercy that's displayed to us in this. Begin to open our eyes to see how good this is. Help us to open our hearts to respond to it. If there's some in this room that's just so difficult to believe, begin even now to crack into their own cold hearts that they might see how good you are and find that there is greater joy in your mercy than there is anywhere else. For those of us, on the other hand, maybe we've either pridefully thought that this was about us or that we've just selfishly thought that this didn't have anything to do with us. Would you begin to show us how you've strategically placed us in the world, that you strategically saved us so that our family might hear the good news. You strategically bought us with your blood so that our co-workers would see a demonstration of your mercy in our lives. That you've chosen us to be an instrument, not because we're special, God, but because your love is so immeasurable. You are great, and we desire greatly for the whole world to see it that one day all the world would shout how good you are and that the, the Lamb is a Savior, that even though we deserve wrath, we only have mercy to celebrate. We ask this, and it might come about only by the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.